A museum in Brooklyn is trying to fill a void when it comes to telling the story of the Holocaust. Instead of focusing on death, the Amud Aish Memorial Museum places an emphasis on Jewish religious life. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. Rabbi David Rydell is the Director of Research and Archives at the Amut Aish Memorial Museum. He's with us now in the studio to talk about how his family history informed his career and the new information the museum is bringing to light. Rabbi, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, George, for having me. So what inspired this museum? Well, about seven years ago, a synagogue in Borough Park approached someone, Mr. Ellie Kleinman, who they were acquainted with, and they had the synagogue had run short of money to complete their building, and they suggested to Mr. Kleinman that perhaps he would like to sponsor a Holocaust project, being that Mr. Kleinman is a son of survivors, and thus the synagogue would benefit by having the money to complete the building, while he would be able to do a project that would be a legacy for his parents. And Mr. Kleinman agreed. It began as a small project. I joined about five years ago, and it just began growing by leaps and bounds. And from a small project in a synagogue, it's become a full-fledged Holocaust museum and research center. Now talk to me more about your involvement, because you have a very personal connection to the Holocaust. Well, yes, even though I am not a grandson of survivors— my grandfather, Mike Tress, who was born in New York in a, approximately the year 1910, was a leader of a Jewish organization called the Gudeth Israel. And during the war years, he was very active in trying to arrange visas and affidavits for refugees to be allowed into the United States. He was also active in lobbying government officials for various rescue plans and trying to save the Jews in Europe. When did you first learn that? Well, his na- my grandfather's name was always mentioned in the house. and So he wasn't alive when you were a kid? No, he passed away in 1967. And so even though I had never met him, I always knew of him. And since I had, I always had an interest in history. It was always my favorite subject in school. So whenever I would go visit my grandmother, who lived in Borough Park, I would spend time just opening her drawers and her closets, looking through the papers that she happened to have there. And I remember the first time I made a real discovery, so to speak, was probably when I was about... 13 or 14 years old, and I found on top of a book closet close to the ceiling of the bedroom, there was a, a red leather briefcase, and I took it down, and the leather was cracking like when you touched it, there was this red powder that got all over you and your clothing, and I opened it up. It turned out to be my grandfather's briefcase, and within the briefcase, I found this envelope which wa- which had a letter from a United States lieutenant, a Jewish GI who served in World War II, and it was a letter describing his experiences while liberating the Buchenwald concentration camp. And it also contained some photos that this lieutenant had taken of the 
dead bodies he found in Buchenwald. And he had sent this to my grandfather. And I found that fascinating that why was it, my, uh, as I had previously mentioned, my grandfather had passed on in 1967. So even though this letter was from 21 years earlier, he still held this envelope with this letter and the photos in his briefcase. And that made it very personal that my grandfather didn't forget about the Holocaust, about those who were lost, those who they tried to save, those who unfortunately they were unable to save. And that really made me get involved and start organizing my grandfather's papers and really delving into that history. What else did you find in your grandmother's closets, in her drawers? What else did you find in these papers? Oh, so I don't know if it was a generational thing or not, but it seems like my grandfather held on to everything like, you never threw out any papers, and in those days, there was so much communication. There was, you weren't communicating on the phone. Everything was by letter. Mm -hmm. And so everything was documented, and everything was in files. And my grandmother had these file cabinets in her basement full of files. And sometimes there were photos, sometimes there were other small artifacts, but it was mostly documents. And I must admit today, I know better. But as an adolescent, I made the huge mistake of trying to reorganize the papers. Mm. And as an archivist, I know now that you never, almost never, mess with original order. Because the person whose archives these were, he had a system to why he organized the papers. Whatever he had in mind, we might not know. But there was still a system to it. And sometimes that system can contain historical clues, which could be very important for a researcher. And when you try to reorganize it, whether it's chronologically, by dates, by year, by subject, more likely than not, you're going to mess up. So, again, I wasn't expected to know that at the age of 13. Um, but I still think I did a pretty good job. Um, and you just started discovering everything from documents, communication with government officials to pleas for rescue from individuals stuck in Europe and just begging for mercy, begging, please help save us. And that combination of the personal and the general historical narrative of where you see that communication with government officials, whether it's in the United States State Department, whether it's congressmen, senators, was just so extremely powerful. So essentially, you were able to read this story unfold about how the states were helping Jews escape from Europe, escape the Holocaust. Right. At times, the government was assisting, and at times, unfortunately, the government created obstacles where people could not get out. For example, there are many letters. Every, every potential immigrant needed to have an affidavit, which was basically a letter of support from someone here in the United States who was sponsoring that individual, saying that he's taking responsibility, that that refugee will not become a financial burden on the government. And so... 
there are various letters from the State Department where they're rejecting different applicants, whether it's because the financial support they deemed was not sufficient, whether it was because they felt the person who was sponsoring that affidavit wasn't a close enough relative. So they said, there's no reason why that person should be interested in taking care of this refugee. And so they rejected it for that reason. And I've been able to do research, and I've looked into various of these names who were rejected by the State Department. And not always, but there are from those names, from these people who, unfortunately, they were killed in the Holocaust. Mm. So that doesn't always mean that had the State Department agreed to allow them in, they would have been able to get out of Nazi Europe. But there's definitely a certain cause and effect, which is very powerful. The individuals who took these refugees in here in the United States, were they known as the rescuers? They are the unsung rescuers. Very often they were just regular people from within the community who my grandfather or people like my grandfather was searching for people who had the financial means to sponsor these refugees. And their names are sort of lost in history, except that you find them within these archives where you see them filling out these forms. And they were very lengthy forms, and they had to show their bank records and many other financial papers. And that's where their memories are. What were among the biggest challenges for these rescuers? Well, for the rescuers, it meant sharing their personal financial information, which people don't like to share. Uh, it meant officially accepting the responsibility of caring for those refugees and those families that would potentially arrive in the United States. For people like my grandfather, who oversaw these rescue plans, the challenge was const the constantly traveling to Washington, leaving behind his wife and children, traveling literally each week by train to Washington, trying to lobby officials. And I would say the greatest challenge was being met with so much disappointment. For so often, for every success story that you achieved, there were so many failures. And dealing with failing and just not giving up and just picking yourself up and trying again and again and again. And sometimes they even managed to get those visas to Europe, which allowed those refugees to come to this country, and yet it was too late. Sometimes the people that they were working on, they didn't even realize that they had already been killed by the Nazis. And others still got it while they were alive, but they couldn't get out of Europe by that point. And for example, there are telegrams after their liberation in 1945 where they're still searching for various individuals that today we know were already killed four years earlier. So here they were making rescue plans and trying to sell a save individual by individual, and then these people weren't even alive. Mm. Rabbi, are there stories of children who came here to the United States in which their parents were left behind in these letters that you found? Well, especially after the war, 
there were many children who were who had survived, whether because they were in hiding, their parents, while the parents had been taken to the ghetto and to the camps, the parents knew the children had no chance of surviving the camps. And so they gave up their children to non-Jewish citizens in Europe or to convents or monasteries. And after the war, these children had to be tracked down. Sometimes these children themselves didn't even remember that they were Jewish. They were very young. And so they had to be tracked down. They had to be convinced to want to leave the families by whom they had been placed and be brought to the United States. And sometimes these children didn't even know their own family names. They didn't even know when they were born, how old they were. And there are many, many such files of these children and then trying to find homes for them within the United States. It was a very real challenge. What what I did as an adolescent was I placed each document in a sheet protector and then I put them in binders. And this is not necessarily the best archival methodology, but like I said, as an adolescent, it worked. And I would go to bed with these binders and these, these would become my bedtime stories. Mm. I would be reading about these various children or these various rescue plans because it wasn't just these individual plans, but for example, there would be minutes of a meeting taking place in the White House with, for example, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, where different plans were discussed that she would take up with her husband and what she felt could work, couldn't work. And I just found it fascinating. I would fall asleep on these binders. Again, not a good archival practice. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a particular story that stuck with you most? Well, there are many stories. What I can think of a specific binder which always fascinated me, even though for historians it tends to be a less important file. And this file that I'm referring to was communication that my grandfather would have with State Department officials. But I don't just mean the highest-ranking officials, but rather the secretaries in the visa division. And he would give them presents, which I don't know if today's day and age that would be allowed, but in those days, he would buy them, he would keep track of all their birthdays, and he would send them chocolate or flowers for their birthdays. If they would come to New York for whatever reason, he would have flowers waiting for them in their hotel. And these are thank you letters to him. And, for, for example, I happen to have one sample here with me in which the letter begins, Dear Mr. Tress, thank you very much for the lovely fitted traveling case. It is a beautiful case, and I shall take great pleasure in using it. When Douglas saw it, he said, I'll bet the Duke of Edinburgh doesn't have nearly as nice a one. <laughs> and, you know, it was... Besides the fact that I love that reference to England, but and I guess we would be more used to using the expression today, like even the Queen of England wouldn't have that. Yeah. But um, it was seeing those personal letters and recognizing this was a person 
who paid tremendous attention to detail, not only focusing on lobbying the, so to speak, important officials in the visa division of the State Department, but he recognized that in a bureaucracy like the government, even a secretary behind the desk can make a decision to try to assist and expedite a case or just slow it down. And so he was very cognizant of that. And so he was constantly making sure to maintain good relationships. And you really see it in that file. For example, one of the secretaries had a baby and she was sending him photos of the baby. And it just showed that tremendous personal connection. In addition to stories, while there are, like I say, for historians, in fact, I was just in contact with a historian today who is publishing a book on various rescue plans and negotiation plans with the SS leader, Himmler, and, and trying to pay Himmler to allow the ransom of Jews out of Europe. So I just emailed this researcher today minutes of meetings that my grandfather, as well as other rescue activists whose archive collections are in our museum, and he was fascinated by some of the detail he's reading in it. And he, he's definitely incorporating these meetings in his upcoming book. But taking a step back and focusing on the individual, which sometimes gets lost in that larger picture of six million Jews that were killed, there's a collection that is now in the museum which is a, a small suitcase which was taken by a young, an adolescent girl. Her name was Magda Horowitz, and she had taken this small valise with her to the ghetto in Budapest when they were interned by the Nazis. And... Within this suitcase, she took along a photo of a sister that had been deported to the camps and killed, and she also had the final postcard written by her grandfather, who was in a different ghetto. And her grandfather had written that we must be grateful for every day that God continues to allow us to remain alive. And we must also pray that humankind learns to love and respect one another. And this was his final postcard before he was taken to Auschwitz and killed at the age of 86. And to me, that combination of being grateful as a religious person, not losing his faith, and not only not losing his faith, but being grateful to God for every day uh, that he's still alive, and also not losing his faith in humanity of saying we must pray that humankind learns to love and respect one another, not being pessimistic, not being cynical, Besides his, despite his being aware that more likely than not he won't survive, is a very powerful 
personal collection. Now, I tie it in with my grandfather's archives is because within my grandfather's archives, I have found documents where my grandfather was trying to save this grandfather and his family. Unfortunately, he wasn't successful, though the granddaughter Magda did survive, and she's the one who gave Amadesh the collection. But you see how various collections that are coming into the museum are coming together as one. Here you have the personal aspect, the suitcase, and the personal mementos. And then within a collection like my grandfather's, you see those rescue attempts to try to save this family. What makes this museum, the Amud Aish Museum, different than other Holocaust museums? Well, what Amud Aish brings to the table is besides obviously telling the full Holocaust narrative, is bringing a focus on the, the religious perspective. For example, that postcard that I just mentioned, as a religious Jew, that statement of being grateful to God has a tremendous importance. And there are many different artifacts within our museum that reflect on that religious nature. In other words, there were several struggles taking place in the Holocaust. There was a struggle to live, which every Jew faced. There was a struggle to maintain human dignity, which again, every victim faced. But for the religious Jew, there was also a struggle to try to maintain, as best as one could in those circumstances, religious practice. So, for example, we currently have on display in our museum a pair of tzitzis, which is a religious cloth that Jewish men wear. And this pair of tzitzis was smuggled into Auschwitz, and a Jew who was a teenager at the time, his name was Mendel Landau, he risked his life to put on that pair of tzitzis and recite the blessing that said when wearing the tzitzis. He was caught, he was severely beaten, and to this day you can still see the bloodstains on that pair of tzitzis. And Mendel Landau risked his life to continue to hold on to that pair of tzitzis even after he was beaten, and he held on to it for the rest of his life. And that's a perspective that is mostly not told and not shown in other Holocaust museums. And so while we tell the story of all Jews, religious, non-religious, but there's that emphasis on those stories that reflect those religious values. Now, you're telling those stories here in New York City in Brooklyn, but you're also working with folks in Auschwitz, right, to make sure that story is told there as well. Correct. What's happening is is that many museums are recognizing that, we are, that Ahmed Aish is bringing something very unique to the table, something that has not been told until now. They are also recognizing that there are many religious Jews 
who never felt comfortable sharing their collections with these other museums because they felt it wouldn't be properly appreciated in those museums. And they are now donating those artifacts and those documents and those collections to Amadesh. And that includes personal stories and personal collections of victims and survivors, as well as what we mentioned earlier, individuals such as my, my grandfather, various Orthodox religious Jewish activists who were very involved in trying to rescue the Jews in Nazi Europe. And now their archives, which are of tremendous historical importance, are being donated to Ahmed Aish. So museums around the world are recognizing and fascinated by these collections that, that are now showing up in Ahmed Aish, and they want to partner with Ahmed Aish in telling this historical narrative. And so in Auschwitz, for example, they are working out with Ahmed Aish that Ahmed Aish should train their docents, their guides, to have an understanding of what the religious perspective and the religious experience was within Auschwitz. And there are many such examples of religious stories that took place in Auschwitz. And they want the docents to include those experiences, especially when religious groups come to visit their uh, their museum as well as the actual site of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And they are also going to have an exhibit reflecting the religious experience. Now, your museum in Brooklyn is currently in a temporary location, but you're planning to move to a permanent location, correct? Correct. Our permanent location is scheduled to be in Borough Park. However, we currently operate out of Mill Basin. And there are also talks of various satellite divisions, such as in Lakewood, New Jersey, and Jerusalem, because there is a very unique experience that Ahmed Aish is bringing to the forefront. Is there any particular significance to having Ahmed Aish located in Brooklyn? Yes, absolutely. The Borough Park is one of the largest religious communities in the United States. It's also one of the largest survivor communities, and though unfortunately um, many of the survivors are no longer with us. And so having it in Borough Park is especially meaningful because even though our museum is open for all audiences, Jewish, non-Jewish, religious, non-religious, but having such a museum within, within the neighborhood of religious Jews and religious survivors, there has been tremendous interest and feedback from the community, and it's very meaningful. When's the official opening? Amadesh began as a very small project and has grown into a full-fledged museum. That's a wonderful thing, but it also means there are wonderful challenges. And so while we had expected to 
already be open in Borough Park. We had to recognize that we have just grown to something much bigger, which made us go back to the drawing board and rethink the current plans. So as such, we're still working on the permanent museum as well as the official date of when the opening will take place. So it's on the way. Meantime, go to Mill Basin. Absolutely. Please come. We already have schools and general public who schedule uh, appointments to come. And while it's not on the full-fledged museum that's planned, but it's already a very meaningful and special place to visit. Now, is there a website that people can go to to find out more information about the museum? Yes, the website is amrish.org. That's A-M-U-D-A-I-S-H dot org. Rabbi, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Rabbi David Rydell is the Director of Research and Archives at the Amut Aish Memorial Museum in Brooklyn. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante, and thank you for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.